Welcome to this BMJ Roundtable. I'm Rebecca Coombs, Head of Features and Investigations at the BMJ. And for this roundtable, we brought together experts in the field of general practice, emergency medicine and paediatrics to talk about the state of -of out-of-hours care in the UK and, crucially, to ask them about their vision for a better service. Nina Modi, President of the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, kicked off the discussion by framing it around the needs of patients, particularly a family with a sick child. They have, they have a young child, they think something's not quite right, it's not something obvious. Um, if it was obvious, they would know what to do. So if a child breaks a leg, well, you go, you, you, you go scoot, scootering off to, to, to A&E straight, straight away. But if it's something more subtle and they think the child is not quite right, what should they be doing? Um, they need advice. Pick up the phone. Who should they pick up the phone to? I would like them to be able to pick up the phone to somebody who knows them and who they trust. And that comes back to their, their family doctor. And so the first question is, have we really, really have to, do we have to give up on the old notion of the, the family doctor and the holistic pra- practice? Because that seems to me to have been a great, great loss indeed. Clifford Mann, President of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, proposed that there should be a one-stop shop for out-of-hours care, regardless of what kind of treatment a patient needs. I take Nina's point that we know substantial proportions of people who arrive at an emergency department don't need to see an emergency doctor. But we would argue that they don't necessarily not need to be at A&E. If there are no real alternatives for them, where are they going to go? So what we would argue is that um, a substantial proportion, probably 20%, which is about three, three and a half million people, could be seen by co-located services. And those co-located services would include urgent out-of-hours primary care in many cases, but it would also include um, out-of-hours mental health care for people in crisis. It would include access to community pharmacies at least 16 hours a day, 365 days a year. And alongside that, we would therefore have an A&E hub, which the emergency department is just one part. It's an important part, and it would probably be seeing over 50% of the patients that go there. But a substantial proportion could be seen by community pharmacy, by primary care services, or by mental health teams. The great advantage of that hub model is that we're not trying to re-educate a whole population. We're not trying to change all the signs. We're not trying to change behaviours which are notoriously difficult to change, particularly when we've all accepted that many people's behaviour is entirely rational, given the current constraints on the system. Um, What we are doing is aligning services much better to patient needs. So if you need to see an urgent primary care practitioner, you can. If you need to see a pharmacist, you can. But you don't have to second-guess yourself as the patient or the parents of the patient as to how ill you are. Martin Rowland, Professor of Primary Care at Cambridge University and until very recently a GP2, agrees that co-location could help patients access already existing services. So if you take the example where I work, which is in Cambridge, there is an any department to which lots of people go. Some of them shouldn't go there. They should be going to a GP out of our centre. There is also a GP out of our centre. It's not in a terribly obvious place. And so patients are, A, may not know about that, particularly people who are new to the area. So they think, my kid's sick. What shall I do? I know where A&E is. So <clears throat> maybe it would be logical rather than giving patients that decision to make, they're not quite sure where the right place to go. If you, where geography allowed, co-located those, then somebody at the front door can make a very quick decision. Actually, it looks like you should be going to the GP bit or the a bit 
or the pharmacy bit. We would, the, the whole point is we mustn't call it something else. We've got so many, we've got a plethora of different names, walk-in centres, urgent care centres, out-of-hour centres, um, yeah, literally, literally dozens of them. Everybody knows the A&E brand. It's the strongest brand within the NHS, which is of itself a very strong brand. I often have patients who say they've waited a long time to see me. It's overcrowded. I've never had a patient said, we had a hell of a job finding this place. What they aren't actually demanding is they want to see an emergency physician. That's not what they want. They want to see the right sort of person for them, which may well be a pharmacist. It could be a primary care practitioner, which may be a doctor or a nurse. If we had our way, we would expand it and we could include dentistry. There's no reason why we couldn't have more input from paediatricians. And using our resources more uh, in, in a more integrated way and more collaboratively, I think actually is what patients would really value. Thank you. And, and Nina, I mean, does that would that model, do you think, work for small children? Or do you think that something specifically needs to be done to cater for out-of-hour needs of small children? No, I mean that model would work would work very well indeed. I think the, the 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 crucial point is that when when that small child is taken to such a such a facility, they actually see someone who has been who's been who's competent to to deal with their problems, um, who is able to recognise illness in them. So it's not about the location, but it's about the skill set of the the people they'll be seeing. The hub model that I've just discussed um, uh, hasn't just been plucked out of thin air and hasn't been dis- you know, created without discussion with other key groups. So we have the endorsement of the Royal College of GPs, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the Pharmaceutical Society, the Patients Association and the British Geriatric Society because part of our hub would be in-reach from frailty teams, which is an, another subject but an important subject. So this isn't um, us trying to um, uh, corner the market in, in, in a good idea. This is us presenting the idea that has been coalesced using the expertise of these other various and very important bodies. Our panellists agreed that qualification and experience are necessary for effective triage. And so the conversation turned to the current front line of out-of-hours care, NHS 111. Should NHS 111 call takers be better qualified? Just looking back in history now, obviously NHS Direct was a service that it took over from. They This was run by trained nurses. NHS 111, you do not need to be very well qualified to be a call handler. I mean, we, we've looked at uh, job ads and, and, and one we read, all you need is a driving licence so you can be available to work antisocial hours. Um, is that a big issue? We've got a real paradox in the NHS at the moment. So in hospitals, um, uh, departments of medicine have, have increasingly realised that you need somebody experienced at the front door. So you don't put your most junior doctor deciding whether the patient needs admitting to hospital or not. And hospitals increasingly have consultant physicians in A&E for large parts of the day and, and evening. In, in primary care, we've done precisely the reverse. So if you ring up to speak <coughs> because you've got a problem out of hours, um, in most cases, or in many cases, you get put through to NHS 111, which is call centre staffed by very inexperienced people running off a um, computerised protocol, which inevitably has to be very risk-averse. It can't work in any other way. And we recently <coughs> analysed calls in, in Cambridgeshire uh, where the NHS 111 call handler had told somebody to go to A&E, and we had a GP on the phone reviewing that decision with the patient or the parent, and they actually decided that they should do something else other than go to any in three quarters of the cases. 
So we've got very, <coughs> a very kind of basic, inexperienced triage system in primary care, which ends up sending people more, more people to A&E than need to go. And hospitals doing precisely the reverse and putting experienced people at the front end. So Nina is absolutely right that the, <coughs> that the person they want to see is some sort of experienced clinician. And I think that that is potentially on the phone as well as face to face. The idea that the the more experienced person is more expensive is not necessarily the case if you're looking at the whole system. Does anyone around this table know of any well-handled NHS 111 yes. services that yes. you would be happy to, to highlight? Yes, yeah, so uh, I think uh, this highlights the fact that the more direct clinician involvement in NHS 111, the more effective it is. So in Peterborough, they've done a lot of work and they have an awful lot of GP input into the decision-making of NHS 111. And they have far lower conversion rates to recommended, to where, where, they recommend, where they recommend to the patient they should go to hospital, and also far lower rates in which ambulances are dispatched to collect the patient, with um, pretty, pretty compelling evidence that actually the outcomes are as good or better. So um, that data has been made available by Peterborough, I think, CCG, but certainly by the Peterborough NHS 111 Centre. Uh, and uh, I think it goes back to, in a way, Nina's um, original point of in the old days when you could actually speak to your GP out of hours or a partner of that GP. Um, uh, we we know that there was a very very effective system that patients trusted, and uh, it was a, it was certainly a shame to see it go. Now, whether or not it was ever going to be sustainable in 2016, I'm not the right person to ask. But what is clear from that is that. The system of telephone triage is always going to be enhanced by having a trained clinician on the end of the phone. So if it's possible to run a safe and effective NHS 1-1 service, why is that not happening more regularly around the country? Uh, well, I'm afraid I don't have the answer to that. Uh, I think it comes back probably to Nina's point about commissioning and the fact that these services are commissioned. And uh, it, it's certainly true that if you employ more clinicians on a higher pay grade than non-clinicians, your service is going to cost more and therefore it's going to be more difficult to win the contract. The irony, of course, is that although the 111 system may cost less if you have less trained people delivering it, the cost to the NHS must be, may be substantially greater because they're likely to recommend many more people either attend their GP, attend an A&E department, or they dispatch an ambulance to the patient. Thinking about the organisation and NHS 111, imagine three models. One is very, in, very untrained call handlers who then may have more support from clinicians than they have at the moment. Uh, Somewhat in the middle, um, nurses, i.e. the old NHS direct model, and consider a third model where the GP answers the phone the whole time. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> that you might think, well, that's great. That's clearly going to be jolly expensive. But there are parts of Denmark in which the GP still takes the call, and they recently published an evaluation of whether it would be more cost-effective for nurses to take the calls instead, and the answer was it wasn't. And that's partly because the GP's were able to deal with more things over the phone. The GPs were connected electronically to all pharmacies in Denmark. So they were able to say, yeah, you need some more of your inhaler. Um, I've just prescribed it. You can go and pick it up at your local pharmacy. So the potential for, um, for doctors to do more actually is considerable. And the assumption that it would be more cheaper for the whole system if you had very expensive people doing that is not necessarily something that, that is justified. Now, 
Well, we're struggling in the UK, though, will be in terms of GP numbers. Yeah, surely. so could you currently provide that, that service uh, in, in the UK? No, probably not, simply because of numbers. But is it, is it a correct assumption that it's cheaper to provide a, an inexperienced person providing the service? That is not necessarily a correct assumption at all. Mm-hmm. And Nina, as you said right at the beginning, your preference would be for for um, a parent, specifically a parent, to be able to access the family doctor. Someone who knows them. Mm. Someone who knows the family. Um, or, or have the records if they can't. Uh, or have the records if they can't, but certainly even if they know them, to have the records. Indeed, yeah. But also on, on, on in defence of NHS 101, one of the key graphs that we've demonstrated and uh, I showed to the Common Select Committee 15 months ago is the, is the spike in the number of people who phone 111 who are directed to an A&E department mm. that occurs every single Saturday, Sunday and bank holiday throughout the year. Now NHS 111, the algorithm works on the basis that it's linked to a directory of services and depending on what the system thinks is wrong with you or uh, the risk that is associated with that, it will match you up with the service in the directory of services that best matches that need, assuming it's available. The problem at the weekend is they send so many people to A&E, not because we are the most suitable service for this patient, but we're the only available service for this patient. And we've got to move away from this idea that people can provide services for their patients Monday to Friday, 8 to 6, without a credible plan for what happens to those patients who may need input from those teams when those teams aren't available. I'm not suggesting for a moment all services need to be 24-7, but if you haven't got a plan for what happens to your patient at 9 o'clock on a Friday evening, then really you haven't got a service, you've got a paid hobby. You go to work, you see interesting patients Monday to Friday, 8 to 6, but outside of those hours... You go to A&E. It's, it's quite extraordinary how many people think that it would be inappropriate for patients to be seen by those A&E doctors at three o'clock on a, fr- on a Thursday afternoon, but are more than happy for them to be seen by an A&E doctor at four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And we need to move away from this peak and trough mentality in our service. We need to look not only at the hours that GPs work, but also how they're trained. The panel discussed the changing core skills doctors require to equip them to take on out-of-hours care. When it comes to, um, to ill health, there is a, a great place for old-fashioned fa- old systematic history taking. And this comes back again to the skill of the, the, the practitioner. The fundamentals of medical practice, which is take a history, mm. do the examination, mm. then do the investigations, and then put it all together, will never be uh, superseded by technology. So I do come back to one of my original points, which is about making sure that the people who see sick children, who are the first point of call, are appropriately trained. Which I think brings us nicely to the role of GPs. Um, And, you know, how much do things like not having enough GPs in out-of-hours duty and uh, GPs not having enough sufficient training in out-of-hours care and you know I know that's something that you've got mm. strong views on and obviously the RCGP position um, is that GPs don't get enough training in out-of-hours care and that their training should be extended from yes. three to four years. And um, in, fact, in, fact, in fact what they originally advocated for was five years but they were asked to reduce it to four years. I don't, I don't think the issue is training in out-of-hours care, the issue is training in the patients people uh, see in out-of-hours and 
daytime care as well. So Nina's absolutely right. I think there's a strong case that all GPs should have training in paediatrics. And I think it's, it's um, you know, clearly inappropriate that only half of GPs in the country have been trained in paediatrics when a large part of their workload is going to be, be seeing children. Um, so I think that is a, a real issue, and it's certainly not restricted to out-of-hours care. Is that a problem that can be rectified within the current training well, period? I, I because re- it just seems... I, I re- sorry, Rebecca, but I reject the premise that we have to look at solutions within the c- current funding constraints. Mm-hmm. I think we have to push back on that. Mm-hmm. Our health service is not adequately funded. And how easy would it be, Nina, to provide training for... to provide uh, paediatrics within all GP training schemes at the moment? How would that... how could that be achieved? Gosh, there's some very, some very, some very careful planning would have to be done, done there. But I mean, once again, I would say it's not beyond the wit of man or woman. At the moment, certainly within hospitals, we've 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 probably got a mismatch in the way in which we deploy our junior staff. Could you expand on that bit? Well, so for for example, um, we've I think we're all exactly on the same page about the importance of GPs being able to access paediatric training. Mm. But they don't need um, all of paediatric training. They don't need to be skilled in paediatric subspecialty skills. Um, they need the sorts of skills that, that are, they're going to serve them in good stead for, for being the first point of call for, 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 for children. Mm-hmm. And they need to be able to recognise a sick child. You, no one can teach you from a textbook how to recognise a sick child. You've, you've got to do that through apprenticeship and experience. Mm-hmm. So we need to be sure that the training that's offered is appropriate to the needs that they're going to have in the, in the, in the future. And that includes, at the other end of the spectrum, <coughs> um, experience of managing children with long-term conditions. Oh, gosh. Um, because they, of so. course, you know, they will be seeing specialist paediatricians, but those families will also be seeing their GPs. Mm-hmm. Nina Modi mentioned the problems with funding. And it's not only the amount of cash available which is a problem, but the way in which it's allocated and spent. Martin Rowland summarised the problems with commissioning. So one of the issues here comes back to commissioning and, and the way that out-of-hours services are commissioned at the moment is that the provider offers a specification and the commissioner will naturally, I presume, take one that looks, if not cheapest, the most cost-effective. But with no um, mm-hmm. discussion or no consideration of the impact on the rest of the system. So it's not a cost to the commissioner if more people pitch up in A&E. No. Now, if we were looking at a, a commissioning system that took more of, of the NHS in the round into account, so you're moving towards a some form of capitated population budget where actually it matters to the commissioner if people go unnecessarily to A&E, it matters to the commissioner if they get unnecessarily admitted, mm-hmm. then that start, Then you don't just go for the cheapest service which may have insufficient people available to answer the phone, people waiting too long and then making the wrong decision. May I pick up on that point? I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I have to say I... I question whether or not commissioning is the appropriate model here. Um, Because, as you rightly say, commissioning requires that a contract specification is set out. And and actually, with the best will in the world, um, medical care doesn't lend itself to the constraints of a... Uh, a, a, a delineation within 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 the contract. So, so I, I would I'd have to say that I am not at all convinced that commissioning is the right approach to actually dealing with the de- the delivery of healthcare. And I appreciate that's a much wider issue than the one that we're discussing just what now. What would you recommend in its place, and what solution might you have, Nina? Well, I think Martin put his put his finger on it. What we're really wanting is is a is a, an out of our service. Mm-hmm. And an out-of-hours service, which is clinician-led, 
and which therefore can be clinician um, uh, uh, clinician framed, cl clinician developed. Uh, what what's required for an out of hour service in one particular part of the country, for example, within you know the, the depths of urban London, can be quite different from what's going to be required from an out of hour service in in a remote and rural part part of the country. Um, let let the let the clinicians providing that service de decide on the design of the service. Let them be um, appraised, evaluated on the outcomes for that service, which is what commissioning was all originally. In, intended to do, but you can cut through this this purchaser provider split, and and I, I say I am not convinced that it is it is at all helpful. Can, Thank you. Can I also uh, add a, a sort of international um, comparison here because I think we spend a lot of time talking about um, uh, if only we could stop patients going to A and E, all would be well. Um, we need to understand that actually we have the third lowest per capita use of A&E departments in England uh, when measured against 15 other developed countries by the Commonwealth Fund. Uh, and we're almost at the bottom. We're, there's a couple of countries that are marginally better than us, but countries as, as populous, as wealthy, and spend as much on their G, much more of their GDP on health than we do, such as France and Austria and Sweden, all have higher rates of attendances to their emergency departments than we do. Uh, and so the, 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 the marginal benefit, if you like, from trying to reduce the number that come to our departments is likely to be substantially lower than many other, other European and indeed North American countries. And I think that uh, one of the things we have to face up to is that the reason that the system is so stretched is not that we have too many patients, but we have too few clinicians. And we have too few clinicians, particularly in the out-of-hours part of the week. So we have fewer doctors per head of population than most other European countries. We are second only to Hungary in terms of the number of beds per population. And whilst you can promote the idea that we should become ever more efficient and effective, we've already done that. We already are more efficient and effective per unit cost than just about any other healthcare system in the world. So the idea there's an awful lot of fat to be chucked off one part of the system and reinvested in another is frankly wrong. And the other international statistic is that we are, <clears throat> we are now bobbling along at the bottom of comparable countries in terms of the percent of GDP that we spend on healthcare. So you know the, the rhetoric in in um, the press is constantly how we this very very expensive service that we provide and you know how can we save money on it and uh, there is a real issue as to whether it at some stage becomes politically acceptable to say actually it's a very cheap service and that's at the heart of some of its problems. You've been listening to Nina Modi, Clifford Mann, and Martin Rowland talk about out of hours care in the NHS. If you want to add your voice to the debate, send us a rapid response, the rest of which we publish as letters to the editor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>